0: As we turn in our Bibles together to Genesis chapter 26, as our ongoing study through the Bible's first book continues this morning, we want to look at verses 1 through 33 of Genesis 26. Now, As I read the passage, perhaps you're going to notice many many things we've seen already in our study of Genesis, in some ways that this chapter, this passage fits within the Hollywood ethos of our time that some have called the age of the sequel. You could title this chapter if you wanted Patriarchs Part 2. Because what we see is, just as we've seen in previous chapters, we see a patriarch going down towards Egypt because of a famine. We see a patriarch passing off his wife as his sister. A patriarch confronting this mysterious ancient Philistine leader named Abimelech. Also, there's conflicts and treaties and discussions about wells, renewing of promises, renewing of God's blessing. And so, in many ways, this is a chapter that is simply reiterating everything we've seen before. But I'm sure we'll see some new wrinkles along the way as well. So, let me read the passage for us and then pray for our time and we will begin our study. Here now, as our faithful God speaks to us once again, His covenant word. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all of these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and he saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this thing that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had many possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with earth all the wells that Abraham's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, Isaac's father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given him. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a wellspring of water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well a sec. Because they contended with him. And then they dug another well and quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth. Saying, for the Lord has made room for us. And we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night. And said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac, said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have not done anything but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So Isaac made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace." And that same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful. That you are unchanging in your character. That you are constant in your kindness and promise. We praise you that your word is powerful. That it's good, that it's perfect, that it's inspired. That it corrects us, it rebukes us, it comforts us and equips us. So we ask that you would send even the Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our homes, into even this building now as we want to know you more. As we want to walk in faith and obedience. Give me a tongue of life that I might preach words of life. As you say, I must, with clarity and courage, as we want to see Christ this day, and we pray it all in His name. Amen. Of course, the present crisis has interrupted no small number of things. For some of us, the most pressing difference is a lack of athletics to watch on the TV screen, sports events to tune into, not least of which has been postponed this year is the planned Olympic Games that were going to go off. And I imagine that many of you might be like me as you enjoy Summer Olympics, even Winter Olympics. You can recall many Years-long memories of watching our nation compete against other countries in the Olympics. And as I was thinking about that earlier this week, I reflected on this time in 2008 in the Beijing Olympics when the country's 400-meter relay race team were in a preliminary heat. You know it was one of those heats that just it's kind of a goes without saying event. They're just going to move on to the next thing until they get to the final race to see who's going to win the medal until, of course, this preliminary heat went off with event. As Darvis Patton was coming down, I think it was the third leg, he was going to hand off the baton to the anchor leg of Tyson Gay. and As that very careful and particular moment of the baton passing is coming, off the anchor leg Tyson Gay goes, he reaches back his arm, and then you just kind of see it on the TV screen. He closes his hand and realizes there's no baton there. The handoff had been dropped and so collapsed, that 400 meter relay race. No medal, no final, no opportunity to run for your country, all because of a botched handoff. And of course we come to a handoff, the baton of God's promise moving today from Abraham to Isaac. And maybe the question that should confront us right from the beginning is, Will Isaac hold on to the promise? Better yet, will will God hold on to Isaac? Or will it all fall apart in a moment's notice? It's quite an important theme that we're wanting to give our attention to this morning. It's certainly one that I'm sure confronts many of your consciences as you think about life in Jesus Christ. We've already read, haven't we, from the Ten Commandments, God's announcement... His declaration that his love extends even unto a thousand generations. And some of you might look around your home today. You might look around your offspring. And you have no small number of tangible evidences of God's constant faithfulness to generation after generation. But maybe others of you, you, you look around at your household. And you wonder, is, is he really Faithful to the next generation. Because it's more common in your experience to see children walk away from the faith, to renounce their previous profession. Maybe even grandparents seeing the same with their grandchildren. Or perhaps you even think about the gospel preaching evangelical church in America and you consider the future, God's promise to be with his church throughout the next generation. And you see, well, it seems to be dwindling in power. There's a creeping worldliness about it, a flickering flame of zeal for Jesus Christ. Well, our text has good news for all of us today a precious truth that God is faithful to the next generation of his covenant family. That's what our text means to tell us. All of this repetition that we just read and I mentioned at the beginning that seems to mirror and reflect Abraham's life. It's just this kind of recapitulation to remind us that God remains faithful to the next generation of His covenant promise. The very promise that He gave to Abraham, He now offers to Abraham's son. The very blessing that He spoke to Abraham, He now springs forth towards Abraham's son. The presence and the power and the prosperity that He guaranteed for Abraham Well, he confirms, doesn't he, for Abraham's son. And you may have noticed even as I read the text that there was this constant mention throughout of Abraham. Kids, you can kind of go through the chapter and circle every time Abraham is mentioned. And you might wonder, why is Abraham so often mentioned after Abraham already died? Well, it's to make sure we recognize that Isaac is the next generation of the man of faith, Abraham. And that there is this constant faithfulness that God indeed is going to make good and is making good on his promise to Abraham that he would be Isaac's God. Not just in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, therefore, in Isaac as well. As our well, students, I want you to pay attention this morning. I want you to think carefully about God's kindness to the next generation because certainly in our church, you represent. The next generation. And I pray that you don't presume upon the promises of God, but rather you take His privileges to heart and trust in Christ, the one to whom those promises and privileges point. And we do see also, don't we, that God's promise, once again in the book of Genesis, far outlives His people after Abraham dies, his promise is still secure. His promise is still advancing. And so you might be listening or perhaps watching this morning. And you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I wonder if you have a a promise or a person that gives you some hope of a future life. Some comfort even in the present life. And I do pray that by the end of our text this morning, you're going to see... How that promise in person is none other than Jesus Christ. So there are three sections in our text. Three themes that we've already seen, again, already in Genesis. But we want to remind ourselves of them once again. First of all, God provides for the next generation. God protects the next generation. Then God's presence is with the next generation. We'll see those themes as we think about His faithfulness to the next generation of His covenant family let's remember where we left off if you just scan your eyes above to chapter 25. We saw last week Abraham died at a good old age, at peace, contentment. His bones, his body was laid to rest in the cave of Machpelah next to Sarah. And finally, now the promises passed from Abraham to Isaac. And we saw that Isaac and Rebekah had twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and there was this stunning announcement, wasn't there, in verse 23, that it was Esau the older who would serve Jacob the younger, subverting all of the inclinations and traditions and expectations of the time that the younger would rule over the older, this picture of God's sovereign grace in election. And So by the end, we talked about Jacob taking grabbing, grasping Esau's birthright, Esau despising his birthright and handing it over for a cup of the finest chili that Jacob could offer. But now what the text does is it returns to Isaac. And in fact, this is the only chapter in all of Genesis devoted entirely to Isaac. If you know the story of Genesis well, Abraham gets about 12 chapters, Jacob gets about 12 chapters, and Joseph gets about 12 chapters, but Isaac only gets one chapter. That's why someone has said that Isaac is just the ordinary son of an extraordinary father. He's the ordinary father of a rather extraordinary son. I think even Isaac's ordinariness ought to encourage us as we meditate on God's faithfulness. So first of all, God protects the next generation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 26. We're told now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Abraham, you know, had famine that struck him way back in chapter 12. This one is different, yet nevertheless, it brings the same threat, doesn't it? Uh, We know by this time, Isaac is in charge of, we could refer to it as a, a shakedom, which that means there's probably something over a thousand different people living within his household. Servants, warriors, herdsmen, various family members multiple animals, that's how they would make their income back then. So a famine in the land for this kind of a household is a really big deal. How are they going to find food? How are they going to sustain their life? And right from the outset, it's good for us to apply this truth to our heart and recognize how often God sends famines to His people to tease out, to test out their faith. Because we, of course, may be not experiencing famine physically with food today in our context. But we do know, don't we, of many people within our church that are experiencing a famine of provision. Of, as Many as lost their jobs in recent weeks. Even more have lost a job just in the last few days. There's a famine of ability to provide for the family. And it is a testing time from God. For will you trust that God can provide for your family? Will you trust in His power, His wisdom, His strength? Or will with some sense of bitterness and impatience, will you try in your own wisdom and strength to bring about what God can only provide? That's so we see, don't we, at the end of verse 1. Isaac is on the way down towards Egypt, evidently. Egypt was that... Land throughout the Old Testament that was always fertile, but always unfaithful. And whereas Abraham kept going, well, Isaac gets a theophany. Kids, that means an appearance from God to stop him in his tracks there in Gerar, the land of the Philistines. And look at what God says in verses 2-4. through The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. So what God does here is He stops the promised son from leaving the promised land. Uh, Gerar seems to have been right on the border, if you will, with the promised land and and Egypt, and Isaac was almost out of the land, and God stopped him where he was and says, no, I want to remind you, I want to reaffirm, I want to reconfirm my covenant promises that I made to your father. Because if you've been with us in recent months, even weeks, we've spoken enough, haven't we, about these promises that were given to Abraham all the way back in chapter 12. Seed and land, people and prosperity, God is reaffirming them to Isaac, so we don't need to say, I think, too much about them. But we do need to say something about verse 5, because it's altogether unique in Genesis. Look at the end of verse 4 to 5. God continues on by saying, Isaac and your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's interesting phrasing here, this language, this law language of commandments, statutes, and laws. It's the same thing that's reflected in Deuteronomy chapter 11 when Moses is telling the nation of Israel to be faithful to the Mosaic covenant. Now kids, you might think back to previous chapters in Genesis and ask yourself, where was it that God gave a long list of laws to Abraham? And you'd search in vain because we don't have a long list of laws to Abraham. But evidently, God gave him numerous commandments, statutes, and laws. And Abraham was obedient to them. So he's not just the man of faith. He's also the man of obedience. And how true that is, that true devotion to God is always both. Full of faith. Full of faithfulness. In fact, as James 2 is going to reflect back on Abraham's life, he's going to say, of course, it's Abraham's obedience and faithfulness that proves his faith in God's promise, that the law and the promise of God, they sweetly comply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clearly they did for Abraham. So Isaac, verse 6, we're told, settles in Gerar and he does what his father did twice. He fears for his life on account of his wife's beauty. And so he says, well, she's my sister, not my wife. We've spoken about this already a couple of times. It's a common tactic in the ancient Near Eastern world because brothers negotiated for the marriage of a sister, so it seems to be some type of stalling tactic to buy time, to buy protection for the entire household. Of course, Isaac's tactic and strategy here is much more of an outright lie than it ever was for Abraham, as Rebekah is in no way his sister. And you want to even notice in verse 7 that it's the men of the place That are threatening Isaac. Whereas in previous texts we've seen it's really more the ruler of the place that seems to be threatening Abraham. So it's similar but somewhat different. And I hope you know that the unbelieving world is always watching the covenant community. Always looking out on believers for hypocrisy and inconsistency. And you see, Abimelech seems to be doing that very thing. Notice verse 8. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, he looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, students, I wonder if you remember what Isaac's name means. It means laughter. You could basically translate the text if you wanted. Abimelech looked out his window and saw Isaac Isaacing with Rebekah. And clearly, whatever the Isaacing with Rebekah was, it was more than just laughter. It probably means something like romantic caressing or playing. Clearly, Abimelech knows they're not brother and sister, they're husband and wife. And so he, of course, is rather incensed by what's going on. Look at verse 9 and 10. He calls Isaac to himself and says, Behold, she's, she's your wife. How then could you say that she's my sister? Verse 10 What is this that you have done to us? one of the people, might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. It's important context to know that in the ancient eastern world, even in pagan cultures, adultery was a very big sin. That's why Abimelech can say, we might have committed it and you would have brought great guilt upon us. And lest that happen, you'll notice what Abimelech decrees in verse 11, capital punishment. For anyone who's going to lay a hand on Isaac, anyone who's going to lay a hand on Rebekah. And do you see how God is protecting the next generation? And then we see in the next section, God provides for the next generation. Because remember, He's in the promised land still. Isaac and his family, the land of famine. Where death is threatening, perhaps, certainly difficulty is confronting them. But against all expectation, look at God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham and to Isaac to provide, verse 12 through 14, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold during a famine. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. And he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines Envied him. It's striking, isn't it? This language is kind of heaping up upon itself more and more wealthy. Became very rich. All of these flocks, herds, and many servants providing this prosperity God is to the promised son. They're in the midst of famine. And maybe that can encourage you even this morning. If you find yourself in the midst of famine as we spoke about earlier. That even in impossible circumstances, God can provide a hundredfold. God can provide an astonishing degree of fruitfulness because of his promise to provide for the next generation. It makes altogether sense why the Philistines envied him. They're struck with famine. Surely their market had crashed somewhat. And here goes Isaacs, you know, just booming in their very sight. And so look what they do in verse 15. They had stopped and filled the earth. With earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. You know, wells were means in the ancient world, not just of prosperity, but also security, right? Kids, you know, you need water to live. Animals, they need water to live. And so filling in a well with earth... But if you go back to chapter 21, Abimelech and Abraham had sealed this non-aggression pact. So this is is really an act of warfare almost against Isaac's household, filling in these wells because they envied what was coming from them, prosperity and and fruitfulness. It's great affliction, isn't it? So much so, the affliction increases. Notice verse 16, Abimelech says, get out of town. Go away from us, Isaac. You're much more mightier than we. And that pattern is fascinating to me just these first 16 verses you have famine in Isaac's life the covenant family's experience famine abundant blessing that seemingly disappears in an instant and some of you know that pattern don't you there was a time of of need and there was a time of great provision from God, and then unexpectedly, surprisingly, altogether disappointingly, it goes away. And so, what will you do in such a circumstance? What will you pursue in such an instance? What you see, Isaac does is he basically goes to the old paths, he starts retracing. These trails, if you will, of Abraham, his father, going from well to well, re-digging these former places that belonged to his family. So if you just scan your eyes through verses 18 through 22, there's well after well that they dig, and the first two are filled up. They're quarreling, at least, with the people of the land. And so Isaac's people, they dig this well. There's a fight over it, so he names that first well, Contention. They dig another well. As quarreling over it. So they name that well, hostility. Then they dig another well. It's like the third time is the charm. You see in verse 22, they name that one, Rehoboth, which means open spaces. For Isaac said, the end of verse 22, Now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Clearly trusting in God's provision. Clearly believing God's promise. That he would make the covenant family fruitful throughout the generation. So if you keep going on down the text, he keeps going back to these favorite haunting places of his father Abraham. Verse 23 tells us he goes to Beersheba. And in verse 24, God appears. Kids, we get this another theophany twice in this text. God appears in some sort of visible form to Isaac. And look at what he says in verse 24. I am the God of your... Father Abraham, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. You know, yesterday I was outside in the front yard with our kids and confronted by... This word of God, in a way that often happens, certainly in my home. Maybe your home experience is somewhat similar. The kids were playing out front, and one of them had stubbed a toe and was making a rather large racket about this bloody toe that was coming its way home as she's limping along. And, you know, I cry out from the garage, you know, knock it off, it's just fine. No blood, no broken bones, stop crying. You know, as often might tell the kids, You know, man up. Be brave, be strong and courageous. I suppose that there are times when such counsel and exhortation, maybe even admonishment is useful. But I hope you know when it comes to our Heavenly Father, we don't have a belligerent God, a belligerent Father who says, you got yourself into this mess. Grow a spine and do something about it. What does He say? Fear not. I'm right here with you. And I will bring about the promises that I made to you and to your father. So clearly, it gives Isaac hope amidst the hostility. We have no idea why exactly he was scared in this moment. Why he was fearful. What he was even fearful about. But we do know, don't we? What he did in response to God's command and promise. Look at verse 25. Isaac builds an altar there and calls upon the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there at Beersheba. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. You may recall how Abraham seemed to often go throughout the land building these altars. Which in that ancient world was a meeting place with God. A place where they would call upon the name of the Lord, worship Yahweh. But it was also a place of perpetual remembrance of who God is and what God has done. A place when you would walk by it that parents would recount the stories and regale the generations with God's faithfulness and His majesty and splendor. And I do hope that you have such monuments and memorials, even in your life. That you have a person, a place, an event, or a circumstance. Where every time you glance upon it, or hear about it, you can't help but call upon the name of the Lord and praise His wondrous work in your life, or the life of another. God is faithful, isn't he, to the next generation of the covenant family. He protects them, he provides for them, his presence is promised here with them. If you just scan your eyes to the remaining text, it's rather simple. Isaac, you know, all this prosperity and power has come, it seems to be threatening the Philistines and so Abimelech with his advisors shows up and he basically says, hey, you know that non-aggression treaty that we kind of tore up? Well, let's do that again. Because we're kind of scared of your strength. So verse 29, I'm sorry, verse 28 and 29, look at what he says. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will not do us any harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And it is possible, isn't it, that that initial language in verse 28 and the final language of verse 29 of what they see spiritually about Isaac's family is just this kind of diplomatic, political way of just stroking Isaac's ego so they can get this covenant and non-aggression treaty finalized. But even if it is, it's still true. These pagan peoples recognizing God's presence and promise in the life of the covenant family You know, Nicholas Hausmann was a well-known preacher in the early 16th century, and he was an acquaintance of Martin Luther. Hausmann died. He was a pastor in Zwickau, and he died in 1522. And Luther gave a eulogy of sorts for Zwickau, and one of the sentences became something of a famous word about Zwickau's devotion, I'm sorry, Hausmann's devotion to the Lord. Luther had said, What we preach, Haussmann lives it reminds me of the story of Robert Murray McShane saying something similar to a young man being ordained. He's newly being installed to this pastorate there in Scotland. And he looks down from the pulpit as he's preaching. And McShane says to this man, "'Study universal holiness of life, "'for your sermon on the Sabbath preaches but an hour or two, "'but your life preaches all the week.'" Isaac's family's life is preaching before the Philistines, isn't it? They see, "'You are the blessed one of the Lord,' they say,' God is with you. Do you ever wonder what outsiders might say of Redeemer's culture, would our life together be one that they would be able to honestly say, God is with you because of the hope, the humility, the honesty, the joy and the faith that resides within us? Certainly we should pray that that would be true. And certainly you even see something here is that these outsiders are coming to the covenant family and they they want peace because their peace is to be found. And maybe you're in here today and listening, watching, not a Christian. You know, a simple exhortation I could even give you from these verses is, go find a a loving church because there you will find peace. Because that church is preaching the person of peace, ministering the son of peace, Jesus Christ. They say, we see that God has been with you. Don't we know that Christ came and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy that his name would be Emmanuel? Which means God with us. And you see, peace reigns at the end of the passage, doesn't it? Isaac makes a feast in verse 30. Verse 31, they exchange oaths. And it ends in verse 31 by saying, they departed from Isaac. These Philistines, they departed in peace. God is faithful. Over And over to the next generation of his covenant family. I love to read presidential biographies as I have time. It's always a a unique way to learn our nation's history, the life and times of this one influential figure. And because they're presidential biographies, all of them have something of a climactic moment. Where they're on the campaign trail... Soon they're elected into the office and there's this passing of the power scene between the outgoing president and the incoming president. And once the incoming president is installed, he's now in the Oval Office, in the White House, the media and his advisors and his mandate from the public. They begin to wonder, when is he going to make good on his campaign promises? Will he even make good? On his promises. And we see today. Don't we. That God always makes good. On his promises. From Abraham. To Isaac. Very soon. To Jacob. Even unto a thousand generations. Of those who trust. In the name of Yahweh. So what I want to do. As we begin to close. To impress that truth. Upon your hearts. Just a little bit more. Is notice a couple more things. About God's character. And kindness. Kindness. Here towards the covenant family that's worth our meditation this morning. First, what you want to see is that God's people are undeserving of God's promise. God's people are undeserving of God's promise. You know, I've seen a number of people throughout this week as I've been reading about this text refer to Isaac as the well digger. Like, that's about all he really seems to contribute to the narrative of of Genesis. You know, he's just this ordinary man. He doesn't seem to be doing that much. And depending on your view of Isaac, he doesn't even come off that great. Because the majority of his involvement throughout Genesis is not the best in the world. You know, he loves Esau. Why, we saw last week. Well, just because Esau cooks the best meat. Even next week, he seems to just forego God's sovereign promise that the younger would serve the older, and he blesses the older, or at least wants to bless the older. Here he's passing off his his wife as his sister. His life is more important than his wife. I'm not so sure I hold that skeptical of view of Isaac, but surely we all can agree that he was undeserving. The text is written in such a way that there is nothing whatsoever in Isaac's life that says he deserves to receive all of these blessings, all of these promises from God. And yet God nevertheless gives him these promises and blessings. God's promise is always to an undeserving people. And so again, as we mentioned early on in the sermon, this ordinariness of Isaac might encourage us as all of us, aren't we? Just rather ordinary. And yet God loves to extend His promise to ordinary generations. Those that He has sovereignly chosen as part of His covenant family. So I want you to see God's people are undeserving of God's promise. And I want you to see, secondly, that God's promise is unchanging toward His people. We are undeserving, but He is unchanging. You just can't escape it in the way that the language works here in chapter 26. It's day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. God's promise remains the same towards His people. How is it then that an unchanging God with unchanging promises can draw near and even be with an undeserving people? Well we know because all of these promises, blessings of offspring point towards not just Abraham's son but Isaac's son in the future named Jesus Christ and it's quite striking to me isn't it in this chapter towards the end especially the latter half occupied with these wells wells for security prosperity because wells in the ancient world they were they were really means of salvation without the water in that well people would often die flocks would die and jesus uses similar language doesn't he john chapter 4 with the woman at the well as they are speaking he says, out of me will come living waters. It says later on in John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow living waters. How is it that anyone can be sustained in God's promise? Well, it's only because of Jesus Christ, the promise himself, who is what Hebrews 13 tells us, the same yesterday, today. And forever, God's unchanging Son is the only way that He dwells with an undeserving people. And I want you to notice as we finish how the text moves from emptiness to fullness. And how that is life in Jesus Christ. Verse 1 again tells us what? There's famine in the land. The text closes into verse 32. Isaac's servants come again after digging a well and they say what? We have found water. Such is life in God's covenant family. Such is life trusting in God's promise. Such is life responding to God's faithfulness. Emptiness to fullness. Nothing to everything. Famine to fruitfulness. All because in Jesus Christ, God is faithful. To the next generation. Of his covenant family. Let's pray together. Father we do thank you. That you have given us. A well of salvation. That is found in your son. Make us thirsty. For the water that only he can provide. Let us, like Abraham, be full of faith and obedience. Comfort us even this day with your commands and promises that we are not to fear because you are with us through Jesus Christ, your Son. Nourish us in your word. Feed us by your promises that you might be glorified in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.